this is episode 108 with the Wolf of Franchises. Welcome to the Path to Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Wes Barefoot, where it's my mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs and existing business owners take control of their lives and create freedom for themselves through business ownership. Each episode, I'll be exploring the strategies and tactics of other successful entrepreneurs that have created freedom in their own lives while sharing what I'm learning along my own path to freedom. I'm glad you're here. Let's drop in. What's up, Path to Freedom listeners, and thank you so much for dropping in to another episode. Today, I'm joined by the Wolf of Franchises. When this guy first popped on my radar, I was like, who is this and what what in the world is this? The Wolf of Franchises. So I started following him, heard a couple other podcasts he was on, subscribed to his newsletter, and right away I was impressed with the insight that he's providing through all this content that he's putting out. And because he does it through, you know, this pen name, the Wolf of Franchises, he's really able to do it in an unbiased way where he's just putting good information out there for people that have an interest in learning more about franchises. And he talks about and covers all different types of franchises, which I also love. Um, So the Wolf of Franchises, he's built a content platform. It all started with Twitter. He's got a huge following on Twitter. Now he's got a massive newsletter. If I had to guess, probably one of, if if not the largest newsletters in franchising. He's the host of the Franchise Empires podcast, where he interviews founders of brands, interviews multi-unit franchise owners, But it's a lot of good case studies of people that have built significant wealth through owning franchises, um, spotlighting different franchise opportunities that are on his radar and exciting to him. Really a lot in common with with my podcast, or at least I like to think so. Um, But again, just good, unbiased information that he's putting out there. So I can't recommend his newsletter highly enough. Uh, Can't recommend the podcast highly enough. Any other content that he's putting out there i'd recommend following it i dropped a link in the show notes where you can easily sign up for the newsletter and get access to all of the other content that the wolf of franchises is putting out there really enjoyed this conversation with him definitely plan to have him come back to to share more of his insights at some point but without further ado let's drop in to my interview with the wolf of franchises Hey, what's up, Path to Freedom listeners? Thanks for dropping into another episode. Today, I'm joined by the Wolf of Franchises. So this guy popped up on my radar, I don't know, a few months ago, and I was like, who is this guy? What is going on? But he's putting out some really good information about franchising, and so finally figured out how to get in touch with him, and uh, now he's joining us here on the Path to Freedom podcast. So Wolf, thanks for being here, man. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on, Wes. Yeah, man. This is this is uh this is gonna be a good conversation. Like I said, I've been looking forward to this. Um, I've been, you know, subscribing to your newsletter for the past couple of months at least. 
and uh, you know, been making sure that I look at it when it comes through. You you are putting out a lot of good information and and doing it in in a pretty unbiased way, which um, you know, I know I certainly appreciate and and would think all of your other readers and subscribers do as well. So, but before I get too far in, still too much of your thunder, maybe just kind of give us a little bit of an introduction. You know, what is the Wolf of Franchises and and kind of what are you uh, what all are you involved in these days? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so the Wolf of Franchises, it's kind of just uh, my media brand. And uh, it started out as a Twitter account and newsletter. Um, and it's expanded a little bit uh, from there today. But uh, the ultimate goal has always been just to uh, share information on what's going on within the franchise industry. You know, I felt a lot of the kind of existing media outlets were a little bit stale and dull. Um, you know, uh, with, with how kind of how they share the content. Mm-hmm. Uh, but meanwhile, right, franchise industry, it's massive. Some of the biggest companies in the world are franchises. There's a lot of cool stuff happening, a lot of amazing entrepreneurs operating in the space. So uh, I just, you know, was always trying to, uh, I guess, make it cooler, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that's always been the goal. And, you know, today, still got the Twitter and newsletter going, and we have a blog as well. And, uh, some other social accounts. Yeah, that's cool. And I want to get into to all of that for sure, because it does seem like you have a lot going on. And, you know, as I mentioned, you're putting out a lot of good information, but I, I can relate. I mean, I, I kind of fell backwards into franchising pretty early in my career, you know, got started in franchising a lot earlier than most people do, especially when it comes to owning franchises myself. And I've always kind of wondered, you know, why, why does franchising not get more attention you know, why is franchising not, you know, kind of kind of talked about the way so many other uh, types of businesses or, or entrepreneurial ventures are. Um, so can really appreciate, you know, you trying to set shed some light on it and, uh, you know, maybe bring a little more coolness into franchising. I know that's something that, you know, I've been trying to do through my podcast as well. So um, yeah. very cool. So maybe, maybe share a little bit of your background, you know, at least kind of high level. How did you, how did you get introduced to franchising and, you know, what were you doing in the franchising world prior to starting the Wolf of Franchises? Yeah. So I initially started actually as a, an employee for a multi-unit owner in the Northeast. Um, but that was more of just, you know, I, I was a sales rep for, um, a brand in the HVAC world. And uh, my actual introduction to like the franchise industry was from uh, from there, I joined a, a franchise sales organization. So an FSO mm-hmm. and, you know, learned all about really how big the world of franchises uh, is, you know, how many brands are out there. Uh, and on top of that, uh, I met so many different multi-unit franchise owners uh, because we were always, you know, reaching out to existing franchise owners to see if they had interest in expanding their portfolio, finding mm-hmm. another brand. And, you know, uh, the brands I, w- I worked with, we happen to have some luck within uh, the Orange Theory franchise system, as well as uh, Five Guys and a few other big brands. So I just kind of met tons of multi-unit owners and saw the saw, saw the potential of, yeah. of what an entrepreneur can, can do as a franchise owner. And it really just blew my mind. And uh, yeah, I just kind of noticed two things from my time as an FSO. One was kind of along the lines of what I just said, it, it that 
you can make life-changing money as a franchisee, but again, no one is really talking about it. Yeah. So I wanted to start sharing those stories, but then on the flip side, you know, sometimes let's say uh, if I was working with a candidate for one of our brands and they weren't interested in any of them, I'd often get asked like, Hey, what's a good resource to go to, you know, to, to research other brands. Um, and I didn't really have a great answer for them because I didn't know, you know, we, we worked with a few brokers and we tried to make introductions there, but, um, you know, as far as like a website or anything, you know, I don't think portals really do the best job of, of actually honestly educating folks, no. you know, they're more interested in collecting an email address and phone number. So yep, they're selling um, yeah. leads. Exactly. Yeah. They're in the, they're in the lead gen business, not yep. the uh, education business. So, uh, yeah, that I kind of just, you know, based off that, that was really the main inspiration, uh, was to provide more objective and neutral info and also just you know, kind of show people that, Hey, if you're going to, if you want to be an entrepreneur, yeah, you can start your own business or, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, you know, uh, the, the tech companies got a lot of hype these days, but, uh, you know, and starting, a, a, you know, going all in on some risky tech startup, but franchising might not be as sexy, but I mean, you know, if you own three, five, 10, 15 plus locations of just about any brick and mortar business, you're going to be doing pretty well for yourself. No doubt. No doubt, man. It's it's that's a cool story and and kind of a cool way that you've gotten to this point. Um, I can remember, you know, I got into franchising. I was working for a, a relatively emerging franchisor. Um, I was a few years out of college, and as I started kind of getting, you know, more entrenched in franchising and learning more, I I, I don't even remember how I got the subscription, but I started getting the multi-unit franchisee magazine, you know, probably one of these somewhat outdated, you know, media forums that, that you referenced earlier, but, you know, they would have these profiles of multi-unit franchise owners. And, you know, that magazine mostly focuses on uh, franchisees in the food sector. But I just remember reading some of these profiles and you'd have franchisees that were, you know, really corporations doing, you know, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue. And I just, it blew my mind and it really started opening my eyes to the fact that, yeah, owning franchises doesn't have to be, you know, hey, I have just one location or, you know, one territory of this one brand, like a lot of the really big franchise owners out there, you know, they've built a portfolio of brands. It's not just, you know, one brand necessarily that they've, uh, you know, built their entire business around. So it just, it kind of fascinated me too. And, um, you know, to your point, if you get into franchising and you build it the right way and, you know, you do your research the right way, get into the right brand, the right business, that's going to help you accomplish your goals. You can, you can do very, very well for yourself owning franchises. Um, so it's cool. I think it's a cool mission. And I know when you and I chatted briefly ahead of recording this, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of told you was, you know, it's it's nice to see your your newsletter come out and and just kind of be able to read through it and, and know that there's really not a bias, you know, from one side or the other, you know, from where you're coming from. You're really just kind of putting out, you know, good information. Here's the good, the bad, you know, and the ugly and, and letting, you know, your readers take that information and do what they will with it. And, you know, I assume that's, you know, one of the benefits of kind of creating the brand the way that you have and, and kind of doing it in an, you know, I guess, anonymous fashion. Yeah, no, definitely, man. I mean, I think uh, 
it's not necessarily bad um, that, but there's really not, you know, there's not really a, a company or an entity within the franchise industry that is kind of just um, built from the ground up for franchisees and franchise buyers. You know, obviously, right? Like you're a consultant and, you know, you're a good dude and, and do great work, but even like broker houses or, or portals, like we talked about before, right? Like um, the incentive structure, while there's still great people working at all these companies who are honest and ethical, uh, the incentive structure just from an organization standpoint isn't necessarily in favor uh, of a franchisee and a franchise buyer. So, yeah, that was definitely just part of the DNA I wanted um, to kind of hit uh, from the get go is just, you know, hey, like it, it's all, uh, you know, I, I'm not getting paid by anyone to like say a certain thing. I mean, we do take sponsorships in the newsletter, uh, but it's that's usually just uh, kind of other companies that want to get in front of the audience of subscribers. You know, it's it's not necessarily like, uh, yeah, I don't get paid to do my analysis on the emerging franchises that I write about. So, um, exactly. yeah, I just figured it could be valuable. Um, yeah. And yeah. And yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of great companies, too. Right. That um, a lot of great emerging franchises out there that. Um, you know, I think they should be rewarded, honestly, for, for the way that they've gone about building their brand, building their franchise offering and, um, you know, even sharing their FDD information, you know, th with the level of transparency they have in their item 19s, um, yeah. um, you know, that it's, it, I try to uh, really celebrate those brands. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's so many great emerging brands out there. Obviously, there's a lot of great, you know, established brands as well. But no, I mean, to your yeah. point, you know, if you're talking to a franchisor, if you're talking to a consultant or a broker, like, you know, obviously there there are incentives at play, right? Um, you know, yep. and as a consultant myself, I mean, it's I, I tell people this all the time. It's a business for me, but you know, a lot of why I do it is because one, I really enjoy it Two, you know, I get to spend a lot of my time, you know, researching franchises, very similar to, you know, how I'm sure you spend a lot of your time. And, you know, I kind of look at it as a way that I can, can pay it back or pay it forward, I guess, because I had a lot of people that went way out of their way to help me and mentor me and, you know, help me figure out this whole franchise thing. And, you know, my wife and I own two different brands right now, and we'll continue investing in franchises for ourselves. And, you know, being a consultant kind of gives me an inside track to what brands are out there and, and which ones could personally be of interest to us. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a business for me. Right. And, you know, I, I tell people that I work with, like, look, you know, I'll do my best to help you. And, and I work with some great brands, but I don't work with all the brands. And I'm not going to recommend brands that I haven't spent a lot of time personally researching and getting to know. Um, because I need to feel confident, you know, that I'm recommending really high quality brands. But that is certainly not to say that if it's not a brand that I work with, it's not a good franchise. And so if you find something that piques your interest, and you think could be a good fit. And if it's a brand I don't have a relationship with, I would never discourage you from, you know, going out and learning more about it. And if you work with me and research some brands that I introduce you to, the one thing I can guarantee you is I'll show you the right way to research a franchise. And then you can take that and you can apply that to any other brand, you know, you may come across and, and want to research yourself. So, um, you know, I like keeping that level of transparency with the people that I work with, but you know, at the end of the day, there, there's still an incentive, 
there, right? For for me to, um, you know, introduce people to brands that that I have a relationship with. So all that to say, it's it's refreshing, you know, kind of the the position that you're able to to come at it from. Um, so I mean, tell us tell us a little bit more about kind of the platform that you've built to this point, because I know you said it started on Twitter. Uh, you've got a pretty big, uh, you know, subscriber list for your newsletter. Um, what other platforms are you on or leveraging to to put good content and information out? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Twitter and my newsletter are definitely like kind of the the core focus and the foundation. Um, you know, I uh, I think I've got about seventy thousand followers on Twitter, and the newsletter is about thirty thousand subscribers. Um, for, for whatever reason, the audience there, it just seems to, you know, the, the content seems to resonate most, uh, on Twitter. And that, that's been a big lift in, uh, funneling, you know, uh, that attention into email subscribers. Mm-hmm. So that'll continue to be the focus going forward. But, um, on top of that, right. I have, uh, you know, a LinkedIn, uh, page as well, where we're putting out content. I started that a few months ago and, uh, even, uh, Instagram, actually, we're starting to starting to post on Instagram too. Um, it's, it's funny, you know, I never would have thought that people wanted franchise content there, but we're up to about 4,000 followers on Instagram. Um, so, um, yeah, th- those are the main socials. And, uh, of course I have wolf of where everything lives, uh, on, and, and that also includes my podcast, uh, where I, I'm typically interviewing multi-unit franchise owners there. Um, right now I'm in the middle of a season where I'm actually interviewing, uh, the founders of franchisors. So, Very cool. uh, you know, just had, uh, like Brian Scudamore, the CEO and founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Uh, mm-hmm. I've had, uh, the founder of Crumble Cookies. That was a fun one. They're, uh, uh, a polarizing franchise today for a number of reasons, but, um, that was, that they was a are. great conversation. Jason McGowan was, uh, really fun to talk to and seemed like a great guy. So but, I um, had the, yeah. I had the founder of what's what's the company they've got all the the legal stuff the other cookie company uh dirty dough so I had the founder of dirty dough on maybe maybe we should organize a podcast where you and I interview the two of them together that that might uh <laughs> yeah that yeah, might get little, some attention we we probably wouldn't want to do it where they're in the same room but um no, yeah that that no. might that might be uh be a fun podcast to do um but yeah, I love it, yeah. man. I, I love the concept of doing, um, you know, having multi-unit franchise owners on. That's something that I've been wanting to do more of myself and always good talking with founders. So, um, yeah, for those listening, check out wolfoffranchises.com. We'll post links to all of this in the show notes, um, you know, all his social handles where you can go and sign up for the email uh, website, podcast, all of it to make it easy for you to find. But um, a lot of really good information out there. And I love that you're doing the podcast and talking to the type of, of people that you are. Um, just real quick, random question off the top of my head. Who would you say has been the most intriguing podcast guest that you've had so far? Great question. Uh, I'd say for the franchise doors, I got to say Jason McGowan of Crumble Cookies. It was just really fascinating to hear from him on um what they built and how quickly they built it. Right. You know, going from being founded in 2017 uh, to having about 600 locations open today, not a single franchisee has ever closed down. So it's a hundred percent success rate. 
through they COVID. have across all their yeah through COVID, nonetheless, uh, have across all their social media platforms. Uh, I think over ten million followers. Uh, so the the speed of growth is just insane, and they're to me they're a tech company and marketing company that mm -hmm. just happens to sell cookies. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a fascinating conversation, but on the franchisee side, I had uh, Jamie weeks who uh, owns about 140 orange theories. And uh, he's also now building like 60 dog topias and he's founding his own franchise uh, sweat house, which is a kind of uh, an infrared sauna franchise where you can also do like vitamin C showers, cold plunges, uh, it's kind of like a, I don't even know. It's like a, a bit of a spa, but it's it's more affordable. Uh, yeah, you know, it's not like a super expensive. And he was fascinating to talk to, just because again, he he went from zero to 140 orange theories in, you know, about six years, I think. So yeah, it's crazy. Uh, just an incredible platform he built, and he partnered with private equity, so he got mm -hmm. some insight onto like how that deal worked. But uh, yeah, he was also just again really fun conversation to have. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that's fascinating. Someone sent me something about I think it was Sweat House the other day. Um, and I'm I'm very bullish on anything in that category, recovery, uh, you know, proactive health and wellness. Um, that's that's interesting, especially with with his background. But um, yeah. yeah, very cool, man. There's a lot of stuff I want to ask you about just because of you know, kind of where you've positioned yourself and and you know, you're spending all this time researching different franchise brands talking to multi-unit owners kind of learning from them you know what have their strategies been to to build to the place that they're at um so i mean one thing i wanted to because so, you had a background in franchising before you know you started the wolf of franchises so you know up to this point are there any things that what are some of the things that you would say you've learned since becoming the wolf of franchises that you weren't already i guess aware of or or really understood uh when it comes to franchising based on just your previous experience if that question makes sense <laughs> yeah no i uh, i got you. uh i'd say you know when i was at uh the episode that i worked for prior to starting the wolf the common playbook i saw for multi-unit franchise ownership uh was uh, a franchise buyer would find an emerging brand. So let, let's define that as like zero to 50 or so locations built, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. tons of white space, tons of available territory for franchisees across the country to, to buy out and, and, you know, secure a territory so they could build a few locations. Um, and the owners that did the best, they picked a solid brand. So I mentioned before, right, that from the franchises I was working with, we had Orange Theory owners and Five Guys owners, uh, you know, look at uh, some of our brands and buy in. So I got to know multiple members of those ecosystems um, and all of them did well. But it was because they found Orange Theory or they found Five Guys early on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you can do that, uh, it's like the equivalent of, uh, you know, buying some stock before it becomes, you know, uh, massively valued. Yeah. Um, right. So. It sounds maybe easy or it might sound obvious in retrospect, but Orange Theory was founded in 2010. And if you're buying in in 2011, 12, 13, it's, it's, it probably looked very risky. It looked like a gamble and yep. it was not a, a guarantee that it would uh, blow up the way it did. But 
since it's you know pretty well known now how impressive of a brand it is, um, and the unit economics are fantastic. Uh, you know, now there's owners who got in and secured, you know, the rights to five, six, you know, I, I spoke to owners, uh, I never spoke to Jamie Weeks while I was at the FSO, but, you know, I spoke to owners who own 50 plus locations and um, yeah, they're, they're crushing it. So um, that was the common playbook I saw, but since starting the Wolf, I've noticed that there's another path to multi-unit franchise ownership. And I guess before I could kind of get into what I learned, uh, I, I think it's important to note that. I focus a lot on multi-unit ownership because I really feel that if, you, if you're going to buy a franchise, and obviously it depends on your financial goals, your personal ambitions, all those things. Uh, but if you're trying to earn, you know, let's call it, it doesn't necessarily have to be life-changing wealth, but if you really want to, you know, not buy yourself a job and actually uh, earn yourself, you know, uh, work your way into um, some type of financial change in a positive way, you usually need to open multiple locations, right? Unless you're somehow getting a Chick-fil-A, which they obviously wouldn't allow you to uh, open, you know, really more than one or two. Uh, you know, most one-off franchise locations aren't spitting off that much cash flow. Yeah. Um, so multi-unit ownership is typically the way to go. Um, so that's why I focus on it. Um, and I think that there's like a few brands out there that you'll see that say, hey, we only want you to own and operate one location. And I get why the franchisor wants people to do that because that helps them. Um, you know, it's, it's beneficial for the royalty stream and, and make sure all the locations does well. But from the franchisee perspective, I think, you know, that really spells their potential short. So I'm not a fan of that strategy. But um, since starting the Wolf, you know, I've seen people uh, get into multi-unit ownership by actually targeting a lot older of brands. So, mm. you know, for instance, I had a, a guy named Brian Beers on my podcast. He owns 30 Midas locations. He mm. bought his first one six years ago and he kind of had to hustle and network his way, I believe, to get his first location. And I've had, I had another guy too who did this with Wingstop. He owns 20 Wingstops, you know, and he only got in like four years ago. Yeah. Um, so getting into an established brand like that is tough. But once you're in, these guys are networking like hell with their franchisees that are all open around the country. And the beauty of it is, is that when a brand's been around for decades and has a thousand plus locations open, there's franchisees that are either uh, they're hitting retirement age, so they, they mm -hmm. need to cash out, or they've just been in the system for 10 plus years and they're sick of it and they, they want to cash yeah. out and move. Yeah, yeah. So that those guys make it known, hey, I own this location. If you ever want to sell, let me know. And they just, they get deals for these resales before they even hit the market to the rest yeah. of the public. Oh yeah. Before they yeah. ever hit the market and, and they already know the business, you know, I've seen exactly. You know, I've seen franchisees within the same brand, you know, team up and, and then start acquiring, you know, other locations within that same brand as, as kind of a way to pull resources. Um, yeah, that's, that's a fascinating takeaway. Um, you know, you kind of see in these these different pathways to building good multi-unit businesses. You know, you mentioned this guy, Jamie Weeks, that started with the Orange Theory. And then um, he got into, I forgot what the second brand you said that he had gotten into was. Oh, um, Dogtopia. Uh, Dogtopia, right. That's right. Um, and now he's, he's franchising his own business. Have you talked to many multi-unit owners uh, that are doing it through multiple brands. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely had multi-brand owners on the podcast. 
Um, it seems to be more multi-unit owners of one brand that I've had on, but I mean, I know it, it's not, I wouldn't say it's uncommon, right. To, to own multiple brands. Um, I, I even had one person who, uh, they own three brands Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. and it was all under the, uh, the, the driven brands umbrella. So, mm -hmm. uh, people don't know them, you know, it's a big, basically they own. 20 or 30 different businesses all within the automobile industry. Yeah. They've got Meineke, Mako yeah. would probably be the, the most recognizable brands exactly. under the, the driven yeah. brands umbrella. And that's something that's becoming more and more common. And I guess curious to your thoughts on this, but you know, you are seeing more of these, what I refer to as parent companies, um, you know, popping up where you've got, you know, one large corporation, but under that, kind of umbrella they've got multiple franchise brands usually you know they all have a similar focus like you've got exponential fitness right where they've got yep. 10 10 boutique fitness brands all different verticals you've got driven brands automotive one of the brands we own is now part of neighborly which is 20 plus okay. you know home service brands and across the u.s that's something that's becoming more and more common and i know a lot of those parent companies are really trying to attract the type of franchise owners that, you know, long-term do want to, you know, build essentially a portfolio of businesses. And, you know, I think there, if, if it's all built right, there's some distinct advantages to owning multiple brands under uh, the same kind of parent company. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, you definitely rely, I think on the parent company to kind of, leverage the uh the synergies between the brands but you know i know for instance from speaking to that franchisee who owned uh just what you said mako meineke and then he also owned 1-800 radiator mm -hmm. um so mako right does like the the paint jobs and the uh i think if you have like a dent in your car they can fix that whereas meineke is more like uh anything on the inside of the car you know the engine and yeah. brakes and I'm not a car person, so I'm not, you know, I, I'm sure someone's listening to this part like, yo, wow, this guy's no idea what he's talking about. But I'm not uh, a car person either. I get it over my head real quick, but I, I think you did explain it correctly. Yeah. So it's like the exterior and then the interior. Yeah. They, they specialize in those places. And, you know, Mako's the exterior, Monica does the interior. And then the 1 800 radiator franchise, it's a supply house to, um, basically any uh automobile detailer or mechanic shop so he effectively sells to himself like right yeah Meineke and mako buys product from 1-800 radiator but what was even cooler was uh his comp his competitors to Meineke and mako are also buying from 1-800 yeah. radiator so he has love he it. gets all this data yeah he gets all this data on his competitors because he knows they're buying and he has the advantage because if there's ever supply chain issues, he knows about it before anyone else because he hears about it through his 1-800 radiator business. And uh, he can choose to only sell to himself in times if like products are in limited supply. Um, so yeah, it's, it was a genius strategy, but um, getting back more to like uh, the benefits of owning brands under one platform, you know, especially for Mako and Meineke, uh, he's able to cross sell uh, a lot of his customers, right? If they come into a Meineke, he makes them, aware of Mako and that it's the same ownership and, uh, and vice versa. Right. And, and there's a lot of definitely integrations that the, the parent, you know, the parent platform can help franchisees with even things as simple as like, 
at the bottom of every receipt, why not list all the brands at the bottom of them so that you just to get that awareness out. And if yeah. you think about that on a national scale, I mean, with how many customers are coming through some of these doors every single day, it's, uh, you know, that can really be a benefit to you as a franchisee to just get your brand out there and get more foot traffic. Yeah, it's massive. I think there's also, you know, potentially some big benefits on the sell side. You know, if you own all of your brands or, you know, all of your franchises under one platform or one parent company, you know, if you are looking to exit and and find a buyer that wants to buy everything, that's going to be far more simplistic. You know, if say you, you do have multiple brands, if they all have the same parent company shared ownership versus like the two brands we own right now do not have shared ownership. They are not part of the same parent company. Could we sell our franchises? Yeah. Could we sell them to one buyer? Yes, but it would be a pretty complex process. Like there'd be a lot of moving parts and pieces. It wouldn't be as easy as if, you know, they were two brands, part of the the same family of brands. So I think there are a lot of advantages. And I know I talk to, you know, candidates that I work with when it comes to, because I, I agree with what you said earlier, where, you know, look, some people are okay buying themselves a job, right? And it at least gets them out of working for someone else. They're, you know, kind of answering to themselves. Maybe it gives them, you know, more flexibility in their schedule, better quality of life, et cetera. But the vast majority of the people that I work with, you know, long-term, they want freedom, right? And and freedom means something at least a little bit different to to most people, you know, that I've found. But um, usually that comes when you can, build something that's bigger than just yourself, right? When you can build businesses that are working for you, even when you're not working. And so I agree, you know, in, in most franchises, you need multiple units or locations to do that. Um, but I, I talk a lot of strategy, you know, with the candidates that I work with, and we talk a lot about, you know, what are their long-term goals? What are their short-term goals? And, it's so interesting to me. Like I nerd out on this stuff and you know, like the, the example you gave with the guy from driven brands, like it's genius. And I love hearing that type of stuff. And then you'll hear, you know, like the guy that's got 140 some orange theories, right. Um, There's just so many different ways you can go about it um, in terms of your strategy and how you want to build. Like my wife and I own service brands, so we don't have brick and mortar locations that clients come into you know, we do have a location, but it's not a, a customer destination. And, you know, our strategy yeah. is, has kind of evolved into, Hey, instead of continuing to go out and buy more territory of these service brands, we'd rather kind of keep stacking complementary brands, brands that provide services or products that complement each other and focus on areas where we already have a client base. We already have a reputation. We already have, you know, a good network for some of the same reasons that you mentioned, you know, with the guy with, with driven brands in that example. Um, But that strategy may not be as appealing, you know, to some other people. So there's a lot of different ways that, that you can go about it. So, you know, that's, that's an interesting takeaway. Anything else that's maybe surprised you or that you would just say is, is, you know, something new that you've learned since starting the wolf of franchises. Uh, So that was definitely the biggest one. Um, And you're dead right. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can, uh, you know, skin the cat of of building your franchise portfolio, whether you're going wide with a bunch of different brands or going deep, you know, like Jamie Weeks, I just 
going all in on Orange Theory. Um, so there's a lot of different ways you can skin the cat, but yeah, I just I hadn't seen it before um, until I started the Wolf. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I'd say it's been, uh, uh, I guess, very encouraging what I've seen within the industry. You know, if I'm being totally honest, when I started the Wolf, you know, obviously since I was working with an FSO, we only had about five or six brands. Uh, that we worked with. So that was, you know, where I focused most of my time. Now, I, I you know, I consider myself a pretty curious person. And, uh, you know, I, I try to be a student and have that student first mindset, regardless of, you know, where I am and my level of success. Um, you know, it's just more fun to keep learning and, and keep growing in that way. So, um, but, you know, I wasn't positive when I started The Wolf. If, if you know, kind of had a little bit of doubt, not, not saying... I believed in the industry, but there was maybe five, 10% doubt of, you know, is our franchises legit or is this whole thing kind of like, is this all bogus? You know, is everyone just kind of out for themselves and uh, our franchisees, you know, for the most part, the ones getting screwed yeah, um, and everyone else is just kind of trying to get their cut while they can. Yeah. But I know what you mean. Yeah. And and there's, so there's 4,000 plus brands and, since I've kind of taken that neutral approach as you outlined, right. With the newsletter and everything, uh, I've just done a ton of research on brands and out of the 4,000 brands, like, look, I, I'm not going to make any blanket statements, but what I do know is that there are multiple hundreds of legitimate brands that are, that are good business opportunities. They have good unit economics, good return on investment potential. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's, uh, that would be my second thing. It's like, I kind of got that confirmation and, you know, now I just see it over and over again as as the following gets bigger and I meet new people and uh, I hear new success stories. Um, you you got to be smart with your research and, and you you have to be a good operator and know that you, you can handle business ownership. Um, I think, you know, some failures that happen are more just, you know, if you match the wrong person with the wrong concept, regardless of the concept, they could still be a bad ending. Um, yeah. But I mean, overall, it's been just really encouraging to see that, you know, there are a lot of good franchises out there and a lot of good opportunities uh, for people who are willing to do the work. Yeah. Well, and and look, you've gotten to see some of the other side of the coin of that, too. Right. Which is people that are absolutely crushing it as franchisees, (laughs) you know, and, and building amazing businesses that are generating you know, life-changing money. And like, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this, like my wife and I, you know, what we've done with the franchises we own is, is tiny, you know, compared to some of the examples that you've shared here today. Um, but I mean, just the, the income that we have from our franchise businesses alone, you know, compared to where we were five years ago when we were first getting ready to start our first franchise, you know, my wife was in pharmaceutical sales. I was selling franchises for a franchisor. So like we were doing pretty well, but you know, it's been life-changing for us and our family, you know, just in five short years. And like I said, we're, we're nowhere near, you know, not even playing in the same ballpark as, as some of the types of folks that, that you're talking to. So, um, but I, I've had, you know, when I was young into franchising, especially, you know, when you'd see and, and hear stories of people, you know, quote unquote, failing as franchisees. And, you know, there's, it's a whole ecosystem, right? I mean, you, you've got a lot more involved than just the franchisor and the franchisee. You've got this whole ecosystem of vendors, you know, providing uh, all different types of services to both franchisors and franchisees. And so, you know, I, I remember, 
kind of questioning some of it as well. Like, you know, are, are, are franchisees really even in a position to do well? And they can be, but it's, it's just like you said, it comes down to the brand and, you know, is the brand set up the right way? Um, because they're not all built the, the right way, in my opinion, where, you know, the franchisee is even going to have a realistic shot at success. But then there's the matter of matching the right brand or the right type of business to the to the person. And then, you know, the person's got to execute too. that. I know that's something that that I spend a lot of time with on candidates that I work with is just making sure that they do have realistic expectations for, you know, what franchise ownership really is, because it's not, you know, it's not an easy button necessarily in the sense that, you know, the franchisor is going to come in and, and build the business or you sign this agreement and pay these fees and, you know, a profitable business is going to materialize in front of you. Like you still need, the entrepreneurial mindset, you still need grit, you still need to be able to, uh, you know, navigate the ups and downs of business ownership, like none of that changes. Uh, there's yep. a lot of potential benefits, you know, that come with being a franchise owner versus doing your your own thing. Um, but there's there's no replacement for, you know, what a lot of people just don't don't have, you know, and, and that's fine. But um, so that's the the main reason that I see, you know, franchise ownership not work out for some people. You know, very rarely do I see that, you know, the franchisor just didn't have a good model or, you know, they shit the bed when it came to supporting the franchisees. Like it's it happens. It's out there, but it's not the norm for what I've seen. No, for sure. Um, you know, and I, I wish we, we could have like some really concrete data on it, but. Uh, some uh, there's two things I want to share here. One is uh, I think most franchisors do a, seem to do a good job of um, teaching folks right how to how to run their business. Um, you know, uh, not to use the cliche, but like they are for the most part providing a business in a box. Mm -hmm. the, the difference is is that not all franchises are necessarily providing guidance on how to be a business owner. Yeah. which is two different things, right? Because yep. you just mentioned the ups and downs, hiring. Um, there's a lot of things that come with being a business owner that uh, it, it's different than just being, you know, the manager of a business um, and, yes. and kind of overseeing all the ops. So, well um, said. you know, I, I definitely recommend people if they're struggling with it, you know, try to find, if they can, professional coaching, you know, professional development coaching and things like that. Um, yep. You know, how to build the culture and organization and all that. Because, um, you might know what software to use for your business, how to do local marketing and, um, you know, your sales pitch to a client or something. If it's a home services brand and you're trying to, you know, win over some residential or business contracts, right? Um, you might know how to do all that from the franchisor, but being a business owner is still a little bit different than that. Um, and so, yeah, that's just something I, I've now, you know, within the last few weeks really been thinking about of how can franchisors really um, help their franchisees to become true business owners. Um, but then on the, on the second piece that I wanted to mention was, you know, something, uh, that I thought was really interesting. I, I did a deep dive on Culver's recently in like the last month or so. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm from the Northeast, didn't really ever see Culver's for a while, but, um, they have, they have about 800 locations nationwide. They've only closed two locations in the entire time they've been franchising, which is since like the late 1980s. So incredibly successful success rate. Yeah. Uh, but something they do, which I think is fascinating, is before you can sign a franchise agreement with them, you have to work in the restaurant for a whole week. 
Um, like so that undoubtedly probably they probably would have sold a lot more franchises if they didn't do that. But I just think it's really interesting because I'm sure there's people who do that week and they say, you know what, this is not for me. I am not signing that franchise agreement. Yeah. Um, but they'd also right the benefit to Culver's is their success rate is fantastic. hundred percent. Yeah. I love, I love that. I agree with both of those points. Right. I mean, like I work with some brands that, um, you know, they, take their franchise their new franchise owners through the the eos training the entrepreneurial operating system uh training um and then they you know teach their franchise owners how to run that same system in their business and you know i love seeing stuff like that where to your point you know they're actually teaching their franchisees how to become business owners um, and and there is a very big difference between knowing how to run a business and knowing how to really build and scale a business. And that's like we've already touched on today. That's where you get into, you know, the territory of of being able to really enjoy freedom as a business owner versus, you know, just putting in tons of time, you know, to to make your business run. And you may still be able to make a lot of money that way, but you know, chances are with that approach, you're not going to get a lot of the other things that were really driving you towards business ownership in the first place. So I love that. Um, I, I agree. I think, you know, the best franchisors out there, they know how to say no. Um, you know, they're not. Yeah. And and look, almost every franchisor out there is going to tell you, hey, we don't approve everyone. You know, this is an approval process. It's a mutual evaluation. And and I've, I've seen, I, I mean, I've been you know, on, on, uh, franchisors teams where we've had to go back and say no to people. It's not a fun conversation to have, but you're really doing them a favor in the long run. You're doing the brand a yep. favor, uh, as well as the prospective franchisee. But I think a lot of brands could get better at it. You know, if your business model allows for someone to come spend some time in the location, that should absolutely be a part of the process. And, you know, the Culver's example is great. Cause that's, that's pretty damn thorough, right? you know, Hey, hang out here for a week. You know, like I feel like some would be like, like I did a, a consulting gig with a big uh, pizza brand last year. And I think their process was, you know, they'd have a candidate go in for like three hours or something like that, which is still better than nothing for sure. But, you know, you may or may not see everything that business could throw at you in three hours, but you hang out in a location for a week, like you're going to have a pretty realistic idea of, you know, what that business is like day in and day out. So that's really cool. Um, I'm I'm being conscious of the time because I know you've got a, a hard stop coming up here. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, based on all the research that you're doing, are there any industries or you know kind of sectors within franchising that that you're most bullish on going forward yeah I, i'd say um i think home services uh is one actually uh and you know it's funny you're, you're involved in that space and, and i know one of the brands that you're involved in and that's that that would be one of the ones that i think is fantastic um and i think the reason for that is a lot of the let's call it like legacy home services brands i just think there's a lot of room for disruption, right? Where yeah, um, they seem to have uh, just too expensive of investment ranges. Like we're talking like 200, 300K plus investment ranges for some of their offerings. And, you know, uh, the, the whole beauty of a home service concept is that you don't need uh, brick and mortar. 
and it should be a lower investment range. Mm -hmm. And then the economic return on it should also be a pretty high percentage, right? Relative to, to uh, some brick and mortar uh, franchises out there. So yeah, I just think newer home services brands, again, like, like one of the brands I know you're involved with. Um, right. Koala is probably the one you're, you're talking about. Okay, yeah, no, I didn't know if you shared that with. Yeah, people. yeah, uh, everyone yeah. that <laughs> listens to the pie. So we own Koala and we own Shelf Genie, um, which is the one that that I referenced earlier. That's now part of Neighborly. Um, so Shelf Genie got acquired by Neighborly probably about two years ago. Um, we could do a whole nother podcast on uh, what what that's looked like, but um, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, home services in general, like if you look back historically, it's it's definitely you know, tends to be one of the less volatile sectors within franchising. You know, we're recording this in early November of 2022. A lot of people, you know, kind of worried about the economy. We got inflation, we got interest rates going up, you know, recession, all of that. And, you know, you can look back through, you know, any of the other downturns that we've had in the economy, you know, over the last several decades and, and home services tend to be pretty steady. And depending on the type of business you're in, you know, you could almost even expect an uptick in business if the economy's kind of on the, the downswing. But um, yeah, all the points that you said are valid in terms of, you know, what a lot of people find appealing about home service businesses. So, and I was, I was curious if, if you, spend much time, you know, looking at stuff on the service side, or if you're focused more on, on brick and mortar, but it sounds like you're, uh, you're pretty tuned in with, with what's going on on the service side of it as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I mean, look, I think uh, my, my starting point is just really um, using the data in FDDs to try to see what the potential ROI can be for a brand. So, um, you know, that's, uh, it's an industry agnostic approach. Uh, I just try to highlight brands that are sharing, you know, uh, information in their FDD, especially in the edit 19 and, you know, try to use that relative to their, uh, initial investment range that they are forced to share. Right. Yeah. Um, to, to try to see like what the potential top performing brands are in home services. Once again, because the, the good ones like Koala are lower investment range and, you know, they're, they're good cash flow businesses that don't take a while to build up. Yeah. Um, and I'd also throw in uh, senior care services uh, are actually there's some fantastic ROI brands in that space. And, you know, the way that society is headed in, in America, right, with uh, the reality is, is there's a lot of baby boomers out there, man, and they're hitting retirement age now in the next few years. Uh, there's just <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. there's just going to be a lot of old people out there. Yeah. Um, and someone's got to take care of them. So like, it's a, you know, that's like a situation where a rising tide is going to lift all boats. So if you're catering to that demographic, I mean, you know, you just have a lot of potential. Um, so like, yeah, those are two industries that I key in on. And, you know, again, they're not brick and mortar. Um, they're more service oriented, but um, you know, I obviously have one-off brands that like, you know, are, are brick and mortar and not necessarily uh, like, specific to an industry or anything sure. there's just one-off brands that uh look pretty interesting and have good numbers and are early on in the life cycle that i'm keeping an eye on but uh yeah i'd say uh home services and senior care uh, yeah. as well as you know i'm not i mean i can talk we could we could do a whole podcast just in this but uh pet pet franchises too right i mean i think everyone's aware at this point of the, the boom in uh just you know pandemic Massive. puppies and all that stuff 
yeah so like there's been a lot of opportunity there it's definitely getting more and more competitive with brands but um you know yeah, from dog the, daycare to dog training but uh you know it's still it's still a lot of opportunity in that space too there's so much opportunity there um but yeah a lot a lot of brands kind of coming coming on to the scene and like i just started working with a dog training franchise which is pretty cool because i i hadn't worked with a a brand that specialized in the actual training and um that's that's pretty interesting but yeah i i yeah. I agree with all three of those, right? I mean, I think just massive potential in, in all three of those industries. And that's not to say that, you know, other industries don't also have potential. But, um, well, look, kind of wrapping up here, one one thing, and, and you, you were kind of alluding to this as you were, you know, kind of touching on why those certain industries are exciting to you, you know, talking a little bit about the analysis that you do. But so, so through all this research, all these FDDs that you looked at, and, and for those listening, item 19, when you hear that, that's just the section within the disclosure document where franchisors are able to publish some of the, the financial performance for their franchisees. So that's where you can pretty quickly go to at least get an initial sense of like, hey, how much revenue are, are these franchises bringing in? Item seven is where they detail the investment requirements, right? So, you know, how much capital should you expect to have to put out to get the business actually up and running? So do you see a correlation between how much it costs to start a franchise and, you know, the earning potential or the ROI potential? Somewhat, yes. And I I think uh, the nuance is uh, generally the lower investment is, uh, the lower the investment is, the lower the earning potential is on a, let's call it on a per unit basis, right? Um, you know, like for instance, I mean, there's a lot, like, like uh, I don't know, I was looking at Zaxby's recently and that's like a, uh investment midpoint of upwards of like 800 grand, I think. Um, the average, right, so that's a more expensive investment relative to like Kowala insulation, but you can also make about 450K bottom line per location potentially. Um, so yeah, you typically, if you want like a high cash flowing, uh, franchise on a per location basis, there, they usually tend that, you know, there is typically a correlation with the investment range. Um, but right. I mean, that doesn't mean that you, you can't do incredibly well with a brand like Koala or some other lower investment business. Um, you know, you can always buy more territories. You can do what you're doing, which is kind of, uh, getting into adjacent franchises. So, you know, I'm sure, you know, you can cross sell your Koala customers with uh, your other brand and vice versa. Um, so there's always that option. Um, and I've also just seen some people, right? Like some people use these lower investment franchises as a starter franchise. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite interviews in the podcast was a guy who owned uh, Liberty Tax, which is on, you know, like 80 grand at most, I think, investment. Yeah. Um, and he, he scaled up to like 10 locations of Liberty Tax. And then he eventually was doing very well there, you know, at 10 locations where he got into Club Pilates pretty early on. And now he's built it into 40 plus Club Pilates locations and he's partnered with private equity. And, you know, it's been an amazing journey for that person. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's so many ways to just to really build up the wealth. So I think at a minimum, the lower investment franchises can always just be a starter if that's if that's what you want. Yeah, I tell people all the time, you know, the first franchise you get into doesn't have to be the last and it doesn't have to be the yep. franchise that Love you do that. for the the rest of your life. But well, look, man, I know uh, we are kind of at our time here. Um, 
we'll definitely have to have you come back on a lot. A lot of other things I'd love to get your perspective on. Uh, but really appreciate you making time to drop in here on the Path to Freedom podcast. Um, real quickly, just remind folks where they can find you, subscribe to the newsletter, uh, you know, see your stuff on social. We'll put links to all this in the show notes, but give them just a quick reminder where they can get all your stuff. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for having me on, Wes. Uh, love what you're doing uh, with your platform. Uh, I think it's fantastic. And uh, yeah, if people want to follow along with, with the Wolf, uh, I'd say, honestly, just wolfoffranchises.com. As soon as you land on that site, you're going to get, you're, you'll see, you know, uh, in pretty big text, you can subscribe to the newsletter straight from the homepage. Um, and then again, we have the full newsletter archive, all the podcast episodes I've done, all my social handles, you know, Twitter at Franchise Wolf, Instagram, uh, you know, it's all under Franchise Wolf or the Wolf of Franchises. Um, but yeah, that, that wolf of franchises.com, it's a pretty easy way to, to see, uh, everything I'm doing. Awesome. We'll drop it in the notes, go sign up for the newsletter. It's totally worth it. It's really good information. So, uh, wolf of franchises. Thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Keep up the great work. I love what you're doing and, uh, keep reaching people and keep showing people how cool franchising really can be. Thanks Wes. I appreciate it, man. Thanks again. You got it. Thanks. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining me today and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you'll know when a new episode is released. You can also check me out on my website at www.path2frdm.com. And if you want more information about franchising or just want to say hello, feel free to contact me at Wes at path2frdm.com. Thanks again. Now go drop in. Thank you.